its Innovation Station initiative, the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Department of State is amplifying women and girls developing solutions to global challenges and helping them connect with new communities that could benefit from their work. Today, you'll meet a few of those innovators as they explain their game-changing, translatable initiatives in their own words. Welcome to SGWE's Innovation Station. Wildfires have shaped the California landscape for millennia. Small forest fires clear out dead debris and invasive species while activating the reproductive cycles of trees that need fire to break their seeds. As such, California's grassland and forest ecosystems have adapted to benefit from manageable fires as a means of ecological cycling and resilience. For hundreds of years, indigenous communities have used controlled burning as a means of maintaining balance and biodiversity in these ecosystems. After years of logging, monoculture, tightly packed tree planting, and strict fire suppression measures, California forests are more vulnerable than ever to severe wildfires, ones that are far more intense than the small fires on which these forests depend. In the past 40 years, the frequency, burn area, and damage of wildfires in the Golden State has risen dramatically. As climate change exacerbates hot and dry conditions, wildfire intensity is expected to increase, leading to, among other things, dangerous air quality and posing safety risks to vulnerable communities. Indigenous and migrant farm workers, as one example, experience elevated exposure to wildfire-induced air pollution. Fires, including the Slater Fire of 2020, have destroyed sacred lands and indigenous reservations that already lack financial resilience in the aftermath of disasters. In Alberta, Canada, wildfires in 2016 increased the number of gender-based violence hotline calls by roughly 300%. These social, cultural, and economic impacts, among others, are witnessed not only in California, but also in U.S. states like Washington and Texas, and countries such as Spain, Greece, and a growing number of others. In this conversation, we'll learn about indigenous and technological strategies being used to pr better prevent and respond to wildfires. Please join me in welcoming our panelists, Margot Robbins, Executive Director of the Cultural Fire Management Council, and Ilkay Altintas, Founding Director of Wi-Fire Lab. So welcome, Margot. I'm going to start with you here today, and thank you so much for joining us. Would you mind kicking us off with a brief introduction to the Cultural Fire Management Council? It's so nice to hear. Um, the Cultural Fire Management Council is a nonprofit, 501c3. Uh, we are located on the Upper Yurok Reservation in far northern California. We are of the tri tribal structure, although we do work closely with the tribe. So we started burning in 2013 in response to the community's need, they identified fire as the number one need in our community, that we needed to bring fire back so that basket we have fire materials. And because of the fire suppression for a hundred years, we are living in a tissue. There's only one road onto and off of the river. Arrow Road, and we're worried that should a wildfire occur, our elders may not be able to escape. And so we started out as a community group, and then um, in 2015, achieved nonprofit status. So we 
focus on restoring our lands and so that the culturally important species will thrive and reproduce. And at the same time, it is also reducing the vegetation on the land. And so it is also fire prevention. So we have a board of directors composed mostly of elders. We have a full-time um, fire and fuels crew. We have a botanist and um, myself. We're a small organization. We have about 16 people in our organization plus the board. And we are just really focused on, on bringing fire back to people back to our homelands and sharing the lessons that we have learned along the way with other tribes so that they too can reclaim their traditional fire cultures. Thank you. Thank you, Margot. I'm excited to get into some of that in more detail in just a minute. But first, I'm going to turn to Ilkay. Thank you so much for joining us. We're excited to have you as well. Could you briefly introduce us to Wi-Fire Lab? Definitely, and thanks you for inviting me and an opportunity to become part of the conversation. It's a very important one. Um, so Wi-Fire is a data technology lab at the San Diego Supercomputer Center at UC San Diego. Our mission is to harness the rich data environment in the space, but then turn that data together with computing and artificial intelligence advances into tools that fire science practitioners can take advantage of. So you can call us a resource to fire science community and to develop solutions together uh, that can impact uh, the problems or you know can actually help with solutions. Um, as I mentioned, and we also develop science-driven technologies with the fire management community for fire response and mitigation. So the lab is composed of experts in data science and management, fire science, computing, uh, social sciences, and use-inspired research. Uh, we also maintain uh, a data and model commons. Uh, it's like an environment or a framework uh, for open community-driven collaboration. So through such a commons, what can you do? Our vision is to be a catalyzer for many solutions in wildland fire and related hazards. Uh, requiring, uh, of course, solutions both to manage and also to mitigate from fire. Um, mitigation, as Marga said, can include uh, bringing fire to the environment in an optimal way uh, so we can generate or regenerate these healthy ecosystems that are fire resilient. Uh, this can also be considered as uh, quick, reactive and planned proactive approaches. Um, but the fact is effective use of data and computing can aid in all phases of emergency management uh, in fire and related hazards from mitigation to preparedness to response and recovery. Um, so Wi-Fire Lab in that sense and the tools we develop are available to emergency managers, utilities, fire scientists in the first place, of course, uh, public communicators and pretty much all solution providers in this fire space. Thank you so much, Ilkay. All right, time to get down to the questions that we're all here for, to get into the weeds of what it is you all do. Margo, I'm going to start with you today. You mentioned in your introduction um, the relevance of your work to 
basically advancing and, and protecting target species that are culturally important. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little, a little bit more about the cultural importance of burning, perhaps in the context of some of these species. I know hazel is one of them from our previous conversation. Yes, so hazel is um, what we use for the frames of our baskets. And it requires fire in order to reproduce new, new shoots. And so if we don't put fire on the land, then the art of basket weaving dies out. And basket weaving is critical to our culture. We use baskets to carry our babies, to lift up prayer. Um, it is a part of our regalia, our cooking and eating bowls traditionally are made with baskets. There are also many different kinds of food sources that benefit from fire. Acorns is one of them. At one time, acorns was a staple food, kind of like rice or potatoes today. Um, so it was something that was eaten every day. And if you do not burn underneath the tan oak trees, then the, the acorns will become infested with weevils and not good to eat. So if you burn at a particular height, then kill those little weevils and also the moss that create them will fly down into the flames. And so you're also um, greatly reducing the number of, um, of producers of those. So there are also uh, different kinds of, well, and also don't let me forget that underneath the tan oak trees is often huckleberry bushes. And if you're not burning under the trees, the canopy will close. No sun will come in to reach the huckleberry bushes. And so they stop producing. So that is really important. There are many food is on the prairies, grains and wild potatoes growing on the prairies. And if you don't burn the prairie, the furs will encroach on it. One time our homelands were 50% prairie and there is only 1% left, not very much. At one time we had many elk here in our homelands on the upper reservation. And they disappeared because there's no prairies and elk-like prairies. We use that not only as a food source, but also we use the hides and the bone and the horns. So, of course, we use everything. So we have been actively trying to expand the prairies to open them up so that the elk will come home, so that the potatoes will be plentiful. And once more, that people will learn how to um, to eat the grains and also the grains are for the animals to mm -hmm. eat as well. So in addition to food sources, there's also medicine plants which benefit from, from fire. When the land is so crowded out, out the species, the burn, uh, control the burn, it reduces the number of, of or the amount of vegetation on the land. And what comes back is more of the native plant species. So there is something out on the land that will fix whatever is wrong with the person. If you know which one, you know, if you know about the plants, 
And so we are creating an environment that is hospitable for not only the native plant species, but also the native, the animals and the humans. Absolutely. And I'm going to come right back with a follow-up. I mean, you've clearly made the case, not that there needs to, there should even need to be a case, but you've clearly made the case for the traditional or cultural applications here for, for putting fire on the land as you've described it. But I'm wondering if you could explain how uh, prescribed fire practices could improve local, state, or regional fire management even beyond these traditional applications. Oh. Before the fire suppression area era, you know, 200 years ago, um, we did not have wildfires like what you see today. And that was because for thousands of years, Native people burned the land, a regular cycle of burning the different areas. And so when lightning struck, it didn't turn into this massive wildfire. Yes, it burned, but because the fuel load on the ground was so much less from a continual burn site, it didn't turn into these monster fires like we're seeing today. And so wildfire prevention was and is a byproduct of cultural burning. You cannot burn a hillside without reducing the much, the amount of hazardous fuels on it. And so what we are doing is dual purpose. We're increasing the health and availability of, of culturally important species. We're also reducing the hazardous fuels that would feed a wildfire. And those, those efforts are, you know, they can be duplicated any place what we're doing is back burning there's you know that's one of the things that they the methods that they use to fight fire let's everybody get busy doing those back burns before the wildfire starts let's get busy focusing on prevention thank you so much margo Okay, I'm going to turn over to you now um, with a question. So you're obviously coming at this from the, the data science side, as you described. And I'm wondering if you can tell us what data challenges do researchers and practitioners typically experience when trying to generate something like a fire trajectory prediction? I'm sure, you know, it sounds challenging. I'm not an expert, though, so I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about that. Definitely. Um, so... I'll start by saying when a wildfire happens, we need to be fast. It, often fire suppression is good and under extreme conditions with drought and effects of climate change, when fire is not stoppable, it burns and it becomes this huge mega fire issue. So being fast is really important there. Uh, and also when a wildfire happens, there are two things everyone wants to know where is the fire and where is that fire going to be in the next couple of hours or next couple of days and things like that so the first one where the fire is uh, is needed as accurately as possible for predicting the trajectory of where it will be uh, so that part is not trivial a fire trajectory model is a simulation run of an ongoing fire combining information on fire front, ignition point, or the perimeters of the fire, uh, weather, 
and the landscape with the vegetation um, uh, and you know the terrain and things like that so and the trajectory model combines that with physics-based principles how these models work there are many approaches to fire modeling but when a fire happens fast running models are the only viable option uh, so that as i mentioned before that accuracy uh, that speed is important uh, maybe even a little more than accuracy at times um, so that uh, decision makers can get ahead of the fire to manage it uh, so the data related to where the fire is can come from firefighter communications 911 reports satellites mountaintop cameras or aircraft or overhead sensing with drones uh, or reports that are made available through various data providers and this is the type of data uh, typically we refer to it as big data which has challenges uh, related to the variety of information sources and formats quality of information sporadic availability it's not always available in the same rate format and volume of data can also be complex so even when data is readily available the varying resolution of sensor data and field reports can be challenging to accurately identify the fire ignition point or an evolving fire front and remember the fire front in a wildfire is not a small area there are many fire fronts across a large area so in a sense uh, it's dynamically moving and it's also being managed. So um, how do we understand those fire fronts and evolve what's going to happen from that? Once the perimeter or ignition information is gathered with all the uncertainties around it, uh, doing that fast is important, as I mentioned. That data needs to be combined with weather data, fuel data to create simulations of the trajectory. And fuel is vegetation or biomass, as Mark referred to. Um, uh, that burns or literally fuels the growth of fire. And since there are many resources and um, data sources related to these as well with conflicting uh, accuracies at times, um, similar big data challenges exist. So more of the data fusion and integration is needed uh, and all these causes added complexity to the science of it. That makes a lot of sense. And, and if it wasn't clear, I just want to make sure our audience recognizes that we've gone from, okay, we're going to try to help prevent the wildfires from beginning in the first place with Margot here. And now we're transitioning to what happens when a wildfire has occurred and, and we need to attack it head on. And so Ilkay, I want to come back to you very quickly before we go into some more questions. I do have some audience questions here as well. Um, but in, in a previous conversation, I've heard you say, Ilkay, that the goal of Wi-Fi Lab is to turn what is ultimately too much information into less information that's more informative. So I was wondering if you could briefly explain that and how you've worked to actually accomplish that goal. Yes, and you know, I also want to make a point that all of what we discussed is also related to these reactive fast response approaches and those proactive planned prescribed fire or cultural uh, burn uh, like approaches as well. Um, and you know, what's too much information? That's actually uh, the thing, right? Because over the last two decades, a large amount of data sources, uh, including satellites, drones, specialized sensors, camera networks, become available to wildland management, wildland fire management. Uh, and this made it a rich or a data rich domain. 
um, lots of data and information is good, but it could also create an overload when it's not managed. Uh, so what is needed now is to reduce this information, rich information, uh, into bits of highly valuable insights that become useful in decision support or other types of management activities for planning. And uh, that's what we try to do in the Wi-Fi lab. Uh, we develop solutions uh, or techniques to convert this highly dimensional, so to say, uh, data space into more useful, simpler bits of data that can inform decisions through um, AI or visual communication or uh, use inspired integration of data with science-driven methods that are displayed on uh, interpretable interfaces by various users. So I think that's uh, a gap right now. And uh, uh, together with us, a number of uh, groups are uh, trying to address that. We love finding a gap and trying to fill it with a solution, right? <laughs> um, I am going to turn back to you, Margot. I have a question here in the chat box from an audience member. And the question is, how can conservationists support cultural or prescribed burns without engaging in cultural appropriation? So it would be doing or supporting prescribed burns. The difference between a prescribed burn and a cultural burn is who is doing it and why. So a cultural burn is, is done by the native people of that place for, for culturally important reasons, whether it is, um, whether it is plants and animals or perhaps um, of a spiritual nature. Um, and it also has to do with place-based knowledge and when and where to burn. So conservationists know lots and lots and lots about the plants and animals of the, pla of, of the place that they are interested in. And so what they would be doing is a prescribed burn. Sometimes we use a prescription for cultural burns. But because we're native and we're doing it for cultural species and we're doing it during certain times of the year, that makes it a cultural burn. You know, the people who are supporting or implementing fire operations, they don't need to know all the cultural reasons or resources of the place that they're burning. It's all they need to know is how to burn safely. And if, you know, it's always a good idea to contact the tribal people of that area to get some, you know, some insights into perhaps the time of year to burn or perhaps how fire is going to, like in our homelands, we have pretty dependable wind changes. And so that's really important when you're burning. Wind is a huge driving factor of fire behavior. And so the people of that area have insights into that. And so if they can contact the people of the area where, where they are stewarding, that's really important because there are plants and animals that do need certain types of, um, of care 
that they could perhaps accommodate. And so therefore you're working with a tribal group and not saying, oh, this is our knowledge. <laughs> you know, they yeah. don't share that cultural knowledge. <laughs> they, they might just want to share the practical stuff. For us, we share part of our cultural knowledge because we want people to know that when they're here helping us burn, that what they're doing is way more than just burning brush. Like our cultural life ways depend on the work that they're here helping us do. And so we share some of that insight with them. Thank you so much. This is incredibly helpful um, and, and fantastic insight. Um, Ilka, I'm going to turn back to you now. Um, and I want to I want to think here about one of the platforms that you all have created called Firus. Can you explain what Firus is and how it is actually being used by fire departments and agencies in California to better respond to fire events in real time? Definitely. Um, Firus stands for Fire Integrated Real Time Intelligence System, and it is now supported by California Governor's Office of Emergency Services, Cal OES, in partnership with Cal Fire this year after multiple years of uh, piloting under different uh, agencies, uh, this become a governor's program. So we are happy about that. Uh, what is it? Um, so it's a public-private partnership, and we are really proud of that partnership aspect of it. And it's an open collaborative platform. As I mentioned, when a fire happens, where the fire is, where is that going to be? And how do we disseminate that information to decision makers? These become important. So FIRES is uh, making it possible for California fire chiefs through integration of aircraft with um, readings on both the video and perimeters of that fire very fast at the initial attack stage and extended service is also possible. But at the, at, as soon as a fire happens, um, that fire is evaluated through a fusion center uh, we collaborate on. Uh, and at the fusion center, we have modelers and fire managers, so both university and agency um, staff. Um, and it gets evaluated through a fire model um, for ignition sources, cameras, many things come together for evaluating the ignition point and making it accurate before that fire model happens. And that first model is in the hands of decision makers within the first five minutes of every ignition, um, if we think this is going to be important to inform them through the fire managers within the uh, fusion center. And at that point, uh, that model informs uh, the order of uh, the pre-signed, pre-paid aircraft so it gives uh, fire perimeter information. So the moment uh, the plane is ordered, the aircraft is ordered, it goes up in the air and uh, it starts sending information about the fire. And it goes to a common operating system partner. AVEX Aviation is a part of it right now. And uh, Intera is a company who provides the common operating picture. And Intera system, which is a private company, and the university's uh, fire map system that we developed uh, for the initial attack modeling, uh, they are linked to each other. So automatically that information becomes available and fire modeling can happen. So the more information we have, the more accurate uh, that uh, you know, knowledge about that fire will be. 
So uh, this loop continues and you know, it's a real-time integration of many resources in a very collaborative fashion. And then through uh, communication platforms as simple as WhatsApp, it becomes available to those regions, fire chiefs, so they can collaborate also through these technology and models themselves. Well, it makes me happy and excited to hear that something like this is possible. I feel like that can really uh, has the potential to save a lot of lives and, and prevent a lot of damage. Um, so that's that's great to, to hear. Thank you so much. Um, Margo, I'm going to turn back to you now. I have so many questions I want to ask both of you, but I should mention we have just under 10 minutes left. So if we can keep answers brief, we can maybe get through a few more. Um, Margo, your organization has worked with firefighters to help them increase their experience and understanding of prescribed burns. And I'm wondering if you can tell me from your perspective why this sort of education for firefighters is important and necessary. First, I'd like to express appreciation for the work that is so amazingly And, you know, it's just another piece of of the solution to to getting a handle on these wildfires. The other piece of the solution is for government agencies as well as nonprofits, for profits, tribes, and individuals to all working together to address this, this wildfire problem. And one of the answers to the getting a handle on it is the burns. So typically, Cal Fire and to a large extent, the Forest Service, they don't get much experience doing prescribed burns. So now, as the realization comes that we actually need fire on the land, agencies that are used to fire suppression need some experience or for some of them they don't have any experience with it others do but they need some more experience in doing prescribed burns because it is hard to overcome your reaction to oh fire put it out squirt water on it you know and and they need to get more comfortable with seeing fire on the landscape, doing the work that it is supposed to do. They need to get comfortable with the idea fire is a natural part of the ecosystem, and we need to up the pace and scale. We all know that. So if we're going to up the pace and scale, more people trading, more experience actually putting fire on the ground. I have a quick follow-up for you now, actually, from an audience member. This audience member writes in from Portugal and is asking, Margot, if you have any tips on how to bring communities together to really, let's say, overcome the suspicion or the skepticism that exists around working with burns in fire-prone landscapes. So I think a big part of it is the education to to start talking in your community about the traditional uses of fire, because I know that in Portugal, they used to burn. And, and to talk about that and to start getting people used to it, but really you just need to start burning small pieces 
the land build. You do that and you're doing it safely and people see that it can be done safely, they become more comfortable with it. We've been burning for almost a decade with zero escapes. And so that says something, you know, that says something to Cal Fire, to, to other people about our ability to safely put fire on the ground. And the other thing that I think people really need to be educated on is that if we don't do prescribed burns then wildfire is going to continue to get bigger and bigger, that people need to get used to and accept the minimal amounts of prescribed fire smoke or else the amount of toxic smoke that we breathe from wildfires will continue to get worse. And basically it's relationships, you know, talk with your community. That's really helpful. And I think you bring up some really great points that I hadn't thought of before, like the smoke point, et cetera. That's, that's really insightful. Um, I'm now going to begin wrapping up this conversation with one final question that I'd like to ask both of you to weigh in on. Ilkay, I'm going to start with you, and then, Margot, I'll give you the final word. As you know, the purpose of this sort of session is to really share what you're doing and then hopefully, hopefully help others see how this could be relevant to their own communities. And so the question for both of you is, what might communities across the United States or around the world learn from your efforts to facilitate responsible management of fire? So Ilkay, I'm going to start with you. Collaboration is, I think, the key word uh, that I'd love to bring up because uh, it's a complex issue and there's less than ideal solutions uh, around. Uh, the more we collaborate, the more we are open about listening to each other and understand the problems and the underlying issues. I think uh, we can contribute from science perspective, from technology perspective, from the management perspective, from the cultural perspective. Like we build, for instance, also proactive tools like Burn Pro 3D uh, to optimize where and when these fires uh, need to be burned. Um, as I'm listening to Margot, which I highly appreciate your comments, you know, our starting point is, as Margot said, you know, where the fuel buildup is. We built like one meter resolution fuels and, you know, we know where the problems are and we can come up with optimizations at the scale that's needed, uh, suggested by the recent infrastructure bill as well. Maybe we can come up with a collaborative solution there. But when you use those tools, uh, if we don't talk to each other, the starting point for cultural burns will be very wrong. Right? We need to include cultural parameters into it, valuable lands, and you know, all those actually only can happen if we talk to each other. And of course, I come from a data perspective, often not even called a data scientist and get criticized, for, uh, well, as fire scientist and get criticized for it, but we work with the scientists. We are a resource for fire scientists, right? Um, so I think if we can use data as a currency from my perspective and collaboration opportunity to interpret, to explain what we are doing to each other and turn those into solutions, I think we can uh, make a difference. And that's just one of the things that can be done. Thank you so much, Ilkay. And Margot, final words from you. What might communities around the world learn from your efforts? One of the reasons why these presentations is to help people understand that 
You don't have to have lots of money. You don't have to have political power in order to reclaim your right to use fire. That we started with nothing. We had a handful of people who were determined to bring fire back to our homelands. And we did it. We, for many years, we didn't get paid to do it. We just volunteered and finally had come in. But we had a driving desire to bring fire back to our homelands for our people and for fire prevention. And if we can do it, you can too. That, you, know, you need to do some research and find out who holds the power over fire, the use of fire in your territory, and you need to learn the laws and regulations that govern it, and then figure out a way to work in amateurs to use fire the way it was meant to be used. This podcast is derived from audio recordings of SGOE's Innovation Station virtual event series. The views expressed in the preceding episode are those of the featured innovators and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, the U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. government. For more information on the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, its initiatives, and programs, please visit the State Department website at www.state.gov.